You're listening to Trek FM. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. Harry. First, I want to thank you, Harry. You must have shown me real loyalty down in the chamber. Nothing but that could have called Forks to you. And, um, second, I sense that something is troubling you. Am I right, Harry? It's just... You see, sir, I, I couldn't help but notice certain things, certain... certain similarities between Tom Riddle and me. I see. Well, you can speak parcel tongue, Harry. Why? Because Lord Voldemort can speak parcel tongue. If I'm not mistaken, Harry, he transferred some of his powers to you the night he gave you that scar. Voldemort transferred some of his powers to me. Not intentionally, but yes. So the sorting hat was right. I should be in Slytherin. It's true, Harry. You possess many of the qualities that Voldemort himself prizes. Determination, resourcefulness, and if I may say so, a certain disregard for the rules. Why then did the sorting hat place you in Gryffindor? Because I asked it to. Exactly, Harry, exactly. Which makes you different from Voldemort. It is not our abilities that show what we truly are. It is our choices. If you want proof why you belong in Gryffindor, then I suggest you look more closely at this. Be careful. Godric Gryffindor. Uh, it would take a true Gryffindor to pull that out of the hat. Welcome everyone to Trek FM's local watering hole. Yes, that's right. We're here at Diagon Alley. I'm so excited to be here with the Leaky Cauldron hanging out. Wait. Oh yeah, we're at the Leaky Cauldron this week. It's so great to be here. Uh, we're going to dive back into the world of Harry Potter, which I am so excited to do. I have some amazing guests, but before I introduce them, I want to make sure that everybody remembers that 602 Club is part of the Trek FM network. You can find all the shows at iTunes.com slash Trek FM. We are a featured provider there on iTunes, so while you're there, hit us up. Give us a star rating and review on both of the feeds we have for the 602 Club, the Star Wars feed, and, of course, the main feed as well. Uh, we are all over the place, too. Uh, if you'd like to get in contact with us, you can do that at Trek.fm slash contact or on our website at Trek.fm. Just choose a show. Choose the 602 Club. That'll come straight to me. I can share it with the hosts from that week, and we'd love to talk about you about whatever we're talking about. We've got Twitter, 
We're uh, on Twitter there at TrekFM. We're on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. Of course, I love getting voicemails from people, and they show up on the show if you send them to us at SpeakPipe.com slash TrekFM. And, of course, there's the Babel Conference, which is our listeners-only discussion group, and you can find that on Facebook. Just type Babel into the search field there. Or if you're at our website at Trek.FM, click Discussion on any of the menu bars on any of the show pages. So... Again, welcome to the Leaky Cauldron. It is great to be here. I hope you've gotten some fire whiskey or pumpkin juice or, you know, whatever it is that's your drink of choice here. I am so excited for the very first time here on the 602 Club is the Charlene Schmidt. Hello, hello. It is good to finally be here. And imagine, first time being at the 602 Club, we're actually... We're not in the 602 Club. We're 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 on Diagon Alley. I, I was hoping to get some really awesome vodka from Ruby, but Hagrid's here. Luckily, he and Ruby are sharing the duties. Okay, so, well, yeah, that makes some sure sense sure because this vodka up. I yeah. did get was magical. Oh, good, good. Well, on a night like tonight, that's important. Indeed. And Daniel, welcome back to the Leaky Cauldron. Well, well, thank you. It's uh. I'm ready to, to talk about some Marvel characters. Oh, wait. No, that's that's not what we're doing this week. Uh, <laughs> all right, so. Nope, nope. Uh, actually, uh, the WB and it would be uh, the same, the DC universe. So uh, uh, they, they're the same area there. So a little bit off, but it's okay. It, it's it's hard to keep yeah, track. Of everything's things. connected, really. Um, it, it's true. It really is. Um. Well, we're going to be talking about the Chamber of Secrets tonight, and you know this is a, a a movie I think, and even a book for Harry Potter that I don't think gets a lot of respect. Maybe it's like the Rodney Dangerfield of Harry Potter stories, <laughs> and that's sad because I think we have I mean, even before the show we were talking about things and we're like we just got to record because we're we we got to put it on the show, and. One of the things I wanted to start with you guys uh, about is this idea of uh, really growing into the part. One of the things that's really cool is is watching Daniel Radcliffe and Emma Watson and Rupert Grint really grow into these roles. And, I mean, they really grow up before our eyes. I mean, you know, they're 11-year-olds, 10-year-olds when they start this series, and by the time it's done, you know, they're pushing 20. It's crazy, and it, so it's a lot of fun. I think we all feel very close to them just because of spending this much time, and I wanted to ask you guys how you felt like these characters and just these actors are starting to progress as we dive into this second movie because I feel like I'm seeing a lot of growth from just even one movie. Yeah, I got to say, I didn't appreciate this movie when it first came out simply because uh, J.K. Rowling was still writing the books and we didn't know entirely where everything was going just yet. And so this just felt like, okay, this is the next installment. Yeah, and it was good. But next, please. Because I think by this point I'd read up to the third mm -hmm. book and I was really looking forward to that movie. So I was really underappreciating Chamber of Secrets. Now, as I'm looking back... I love that you were mentioning how the actors have grown into these roles and they really are growing up in front of us. And it's so true. The difference between the quality of acting from all three of the main cast, from the first movie to this movie, they have improved exponentially. And it, it really is amazing to see them coming into their own, really getting a feel for these characters and 
really making some amazing things happen. I mean, already at this point, they're getting so good. And I can only say now in retrospect, of course, they get even better. But even at this point, it's impressive, especially for kids this age. Well, and I mean, when I think back, uh, you know, what's one of the big knocks against the prequel trilogy, and especially episode one, is that people did not like Jake Lloyd as Anakin. They They didn't like the kids that they picked to be in the movie. And so how important it is to have, I mean, think about how blessed this production gets that they pick all of these kids, and all of these kids are in movie one all the way through seven, most of them. You get, I think, one of them. I can't remember. It's Crab or Goyle. It's one of those guys kind of gets in trouble with the law, and he's not in the very <laughs> a last movie. too true to character, I guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But on a whole, the incredible thought that all of them will stay with this production all the way through and just get better and better at their craft is pretty incredible. I mean, but... You know, when you are learning from Maggie Smith and, you know, Alan Rickman. Yes, I was just going to say all this. Of these, Look at who they're um, yeah, surrounded I mean, by. Everybody but Helen Murin, as we've discussed in the first episode, <laughs> you know, uh, it got to be in these films in British, you know, uh, acting legends. It's just incredible. So, yeah, I mean, it's not surprising that these kids are turning into incredible thespians even by the second film yeah you and something that kind of occurred to me when i was rewatching it's that you kind of forget about because you 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 remember them in the first movie when they're like 11 and then i I really do think that they make the biggest jump i think probably between two and three and you remember them in three and i and i kind of forget how much gap there is between just their physical growth and as well as, as you were mentioning their yeah. ability, you know, uh, between one and two, because I was, I remember like, I, I was like, oh, I'm going to watch this movie. And I was expecting them to be more tiny, like they were in the first movie, but they're actually, you know, you know, they, mm-hmm. they are much, they have progressed quite a bit by the second one. Yeah. And Radcliffe's voice noticeably changes between this movie and the first one. Yes. I'm, and I, it's funny, my wife and I were talking about that. I was like, you know, I feel so bad for Rupert because his voice is the one that is most noticeably changing. Like it is, <laughs> yeah. I mean, he can't get out anything without it cracking all over the place. And Daniel, on the other hand, I don't know if between filming, you know, the, the, the little bit of time that they had, it just changed enough so he was able to do it without having that much. I mean, I felt like he, for him, it, it 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 just it was lucky, you know, um, that your star wasn't cracking quite as much as his sidekick, and it, it it just actually works for the movie because you know Ron is is a little bit more of the comic relief, especially in this film. Oh I mean, yeah, he's like the spiders. You know all the spiders. It's just yeah, it's perfect. I actually know a little bit of trivia about. Daniel Radcliffe when his voice changed it was actually toward the very end of the first movie when it started to make a noticeable drop and so they had a voice actor come in and do just a couple of voiceovers to keep his voice consistent for that first movie and then by this time he was consistent yeah which is great I mean for them because these movies were back to back and they really didn't have a lot of time so it just got blessed in that way and one of the fun things too, we're watching the movie, and and uh, I haven't seen the extras on the on the Blu-rays in a while, and my wife turns to me and she goes, 
uh, at the very last bit where him and Jason Isaacs are facing off and he's like, let's hope that Mr. Harry Potter will always be here to save the day. And when he (laughs) turns to Lucius and says, don't worry, I will be. Jason says that that line was improvised. Oh, really? And he was so impressed with Daniel Radcliffe. I mean, and I was watching that scene. I was really blown away that, I mean, he stares down Jason Isaacs. And Jason Isaacs is so good at being evil. I mean, he just, he really is. I mean, he's that jerk in The Patriot, you know. He plays Captain Hook and (laughs) and Peter Pan. He's awful. I mean, he can just be awful. And so I, I love that. And to me, when we when I was thinking about this idea of how they're really growing into the role, that was really what was standing out in my mind is that there was something about Daniel. He just, he really did. He progressed very quickly with his acting ability. And I feel like um, it it was beneficial to the storyline and to the, the movie makers and to the films because you needed him to have the most gravitas, and he does, you know, and totally. Rupert's able to do exactly what he needs to do, and I, I feel like uh, Emma is able to do exactly what she needs to do to make this work for the most part, and so I just was really impressed by, by all the kids in the way that they grow. It's It's really nice to see. Yeah, definitely growing into this and so much more to come. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, part of that growing and, and something we, we, we did talk about on the other side of the the drink here or the bar or the wand. What? I don't know what we want to call it here. <laughs> the other um, side of the wand. Yeah, the other Let's side of the wand. Don't point that end at yourself. That's not the a good idea. Um, you know, that is not a place you want to um, go, the other side of the wand. No, it's not. No. Um, but, okay, so... One of the things that I noticed, especially that really begins in this film, and it's a continuation from the first film, is the way that Harry's kindness is such an antithesis to how he grew up. And, I mean, just think about the first story. He chooses Ron and Hermione as his friends. Um, He's actually much nicer to Hermione in the first movie than Ron ever is until they actually all become friends. He is this person who, I mean, he, he didn't grow up with all the prejudices of the wizarding world. So, you know, he doesn't have a problem with house elves like Dolby or, you know, he's he's nice to Moaning Myrtle when nobody else is. You know, all of these things. It was really striking me the, you know, is this movie, Harry's starting to realize he has some similarities with Voldemort. You're also seeing the big difference between him as well. And I just I really thought that that was a really strong thing. What a great thing for kids to be seeing when they're watching this story. Well, I think one of the things that really makes Harry Potter so compelling, well, is is his compassion, his uh, his ability to make friends with just about anybody, and he has such a uh, such such a good conscience. He's got such a good center of morality, and he is kind and good to everybody who deserves it and then if you uh wrong him (laughs) you know you're gonna get what you deserve because he's not gonna suffer you as a fool you know that kind of makes me think of one thing that i wanted to talk about was a lot of people who criticize harry potter say oh he always gets into trouble and gets away with it and you know he breaks the rules and that's a horrible thing to that's a horrible message for kids but the the difference is like okay yes think about in this movie how 
they steal the car, right, to get to Hogwarts and all that. Well, if you imagine if you're an underage driver and you were to take your mom and dad's car out and then wreck it horribly, you'd be in some deep you-know-what. Yeah, of course. But the difference with Harry is that his heart is in the right place at all times. That's yeah, that's the that's kicker. That's what I think makes not makes it okay because he does have to live up to his wrongdoing. It's just he does the wrong thing for the right reasons sometimes. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, it's really interesting to hear this conversation go on only because, and and we don't have to really get into this because for this movie his his character is fine. He's actually uh, one of my least favorite characters in all of Harry Potter. Um, I don't I don't care for Harry in a lot of ways. Um, he's, he's, uh, especially later on. So that's why I don't think it's really super important to talk about it for this movie. He's fine. Uh, later on, I think from five on, he gets kind of insufferable, uh, and almost unlikable just for me. Uh, but it's just interesting to hear you, you know, he, I guess he's, yeah, he's kind enough. You're right. And I, and I, it is something I didn't think about Matthew that you mentioned was the, and now that it's like my, the gears are going in my head and I'm like, well, yeah, it makes sense. He doesn't have friends. He's never had friends. So it's it's totally works that he uh he kind of gravitates to to outsiders like himself now and he kind of pulls in this group of people and it and it works really well. And in this film, uh that's exactly what he does. Well, and what I think is so interesting too is when you're coming at it like that, you know, think about this Harry comes from a place where he's been abused. I mean, he's grown up in an abusive household and he's been abused physically and emotionally. I mean, and what's so interesting about Harry is, and it, and it comes down to something that Dumbledore says to him, because he's asking, look, I, I saw in myself things that I saw in Tom Riddle and Voldemort. And Dumbledore says, it's not our abilities that show us who we truly are. It's our choices. What I love about this story is Harry is never a victim. Harry is somebody who makes choices in his life. Not always good choices. Sometimes they're bad. And what we and we get to see the consequences of those. But what I love is that Harry is a character. Yes, he grew up in the worst household. He was abused. He was treated like crap. And yet still he comes out to be a nice person because he chooses to be different. Yeah, it makes you wonder how incredibly self-aware Harry must be to not only understand that, but to take action and... Make mm-hmm. make better choices than what was given to him growing up in the Dursley household. Just, again, the idea of, of not playing. I mean, he's never playing the victim card. He's always active in his own destiny, in his own choices, choosing the right people to, to be with. I mean, he, he has the ability at the beginning of Harry Potter 1 to choose... Not Malfoy to be friends with, the strong character that's in, you can even tell, is in the stronger family. No, he chooses somebody who's more like him that he sees value in, mm-hmm. you know, um, in Ron. And he does the same thing with Hermione. And I think that that is such a great message for kids to be reading is is seeing a character who can overcome by making good choices, not bad choices, you know, not fighting uh, bad lifestyle with bad choices. Right. Uh, or anger a, or resentment or yes. playing the victim, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. not being a product of 
the environment, essentially. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I think, um, you know, it, it, it gives us hope that we can we can all do that. We can make better choices, you know, and that's what I love about Harry Potter. There's such great lessons for kids and adults. And I think that's why people <laughs> gravitated toward these stories, even as adults, because there is something intrinsic about them. And a lot like the way that when you watch, you know, I think the Star Wars films, there's something that goes for kids and adults. And uh, Rowling is really good at that. So um, I have to give her all the credit in the world. Um, I've said it before and I'll say it again. I think she's created probably the best work of children's literature that transcends that in the, like the last 50 years. I mean, there's just nothing like Harry Potter. Um, yeah, so. I have to agree. What's interesting is uh, going through all the movies, not only do the kids grow up before our eyes, but I feel like J.K. Rowling's writing matures as she goes along as well. Yes, she sure becomes does. such a better storyteller as she goes. It's really interesting to observe that. Yeah, and that's a great way, a great way to segue into uh, growing the world because a lot of people, again, I think this book and this film are things that uh, people just downplay its importance but she really begins to expand the world in this book by giving us things like house elves, new places, new characters. I mean, we meet Do Dobie, Lockhart. The, we actually visit the Weasley's home, the burrow. Um, and there will be, you know, the most important place to Harry beyond Hogwarts will be the burrow. Uh, the Chamber of Secrets, we learn more about the history of the Wizarding World. And so all of these things come out and I just, I love the way that it feels so organic. Like nothing feels forced. Like, oh, we have a new funky character like Dobie, which could come off completely awfully. Oh, yeah. You know? But somehow it just, it all just kind of works. I mean, for the, I mean, I remember, you know, I, I've read the book before I saw the movie. So I remember seeing the movie, you know, and, and having Dobie jump on the bed, it, it just felt like everything that I had had in my mind, pretty much, you know. So, never kill you, sir. <laughs> just maybe maim or I have a confession to make. I really didn't like Dobby at first when I was reading the novel for the first time, not knowing that he was a very horribly mistreated house elf. I just thought, oh my god, this is the Jar Jar Binks of the <laughs> Harry Potter world. Oh no. <laughs> But then, you know, you learn his history and you realize, and, and he's such a sympathetic character after that because he's just being punished for nothing and he's a house elf and he has to live with the god-awful Malfoys. I mean, ugh, who would ever want that? <laughs> and uh, so then I, I definitely he earned my sympathy, but at first I was just appalled. Later on, it was more uh, that, uh, like that being appalled I switched over to the mere fact that house elves do exist in the wizarding world. And I'm so glad that gets addressed later on because I mean, this is a huge issue. This is slavery. Yeah. And, and yeah, I agree with you, Matthew, that this, the, the world building, that's actually what I love the most about Harry Potter is the, is the world is the universe that it's in. Um, even though there's some, eh, some slight annoyances I have sometimes like the fact that there's no electricity in Hogwarts, like, okay i get it i get it it's all magical but come on now why can't they have a light bulb anyways sorry but i, I digress <laughs> um but i, I do a lo i love the harry potter universe 
and specifically about Dobby and all of that, uh, uh, I am glad that it's brought up later because like he's being physically abused in front of these these other people. Yeah. And like yeah. it just nobody says a word, and it's like uh, you you can't get away with doing that to like a hamster. And this thing, you know, this creature can walk and talk and has feelings. And so that was one that was something that really bothered me about this story. But again, it does get addressed later. So, you know, at least. Right. At least so the, therefore, just, okay, hang right. in, hang with <laughs> well, it. And yeah. And I think that's one of the things that Rowling does so well throughout the entire series is that she will introduce things and then they will become important maybe one or two books down the road. But nothing she's doing is by accident. Everything is on purpose. And that's one of the, I think, the beauties of Rowling and her writing. You know, we were talking, uh, again, on the other side of the drink, that how much did she know? How much did she have planned? Rowling had pretty much the entire series planned. There were some things that changed a little bit on the way. Most of that was characters who may have been scheduled to die didn't die or characters that weren't going to die may have died those kind of things but there weren't really big story plot elements she knew where she was going and it totally shows when you read these books and you can be like oh my god that's so important like three books later or by the (laughs) end you know like that's what's so great about these stories is that they are this intricate puzzle piece um, you know those puzzle boxes where you're having to move around the pieces, you know, until you can get them all in the right order and you have to keep moving? Yeah. That's what the books feel like, is her moving all the pieces around on that board until they all fit and they make the perfect picture of what she's been trying to create the whole time. And that's what's so genius. And for somebody like Dolby, who we just get introduced to who house elves are and, you know, why they are the way they are and then it will you know really get picked up in the goblet of fire and it becomes more of a social justice thing too really great you know um but she just builds slowly and she doesn't try and pour it all on at one time so i love that and and one of the biggest parts for me in in that growth is the way that the weasley family becomes harry's surrogate family like i just you know, you just fall in love with that goofy, funny family. I mean, when they're <laughs> sitting around the table and she's like, your boys drove that car all the way to Surrey and back. And he's like, how did it perform? And she hits him over the head. And he's like, oh, that was very wrong, boys. <laughs> I mean, it's just it's one of my that, favorite parts. What, I think uh, one of my so favorite good. lines in any movie is, what exactly is the function of a rubber duck? I just, I just love. Yes, yes, that line. that's so good great. too. <laughs> yeah, it's a nice glimpse into just how different the wizarding world is. I mean, they're fascinated by, you know, an automobile, and then of course they give it magical powers and a rubber duck. What is that? It's, it's fantastic. It's it. Love it. I, it, well, it makes you want because to Arthur and the Weasleys in general. The Muggle world is as alien to them as the Wizarding world, especially in the you know the first couple of times, yes. is to Harry. So it's great to see that kind of, wow, oh, what you have rubber ducks? What are those? Like, you know, Harry's like, what is a magic and a wand? Like, it's just it's so much fun to play with that. Uh, and of course, yeah, I mean, it's probably my favorite scene. I love the Weasleys the, the best. I want to live in that house. I really do. Oh, it's it's awesome. I mean, it just looks like. 
an amazing place to live. I, and, and one of the things that I, I really like about that, too, is that, you know, this is a very middle class, you know, family. You know, th- if that even, yeah. you know, maybe a little bit lower. I mean, they're supporting a lot of kids. Working class, for sure. Yes, yes, they are. D- yeah, yeah. But there's a lot of love. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And and what I love is how that kind of connects with the larger wizarding world and what we learn about the history of the wizarding world here and, you know, the... um the kind of hierarchy of, you know, wizards and, and where people think they are, you know, it is what what I love, too, is that it feels very reminiscent. Obviously, Rowling comes from the UK. And so of that class system that used to exist in Britain, you know, that, that it was a very big deal. There's still some of that there. And she pulls that into the wizarding world and kind of gives it a makeover um, for how people are seen, you know, like the Malfoys. They're the pure bloods, and they think themselves, you know, so highly of themselves. you got, you know, things like magical creatures, like house elves and centaurs and stuff like that. You've got the Muggleborns and the, you know, uh, God forbid we should say the Mudbloods, you know, <gasps> as they're called. How dare you? I know. You? I'm so... I know. I might have to censor that. Um, <laughs> you should, don't you, you think know, on it, Char. Don't you think on it. I, I I love that. Again, this this really does grow the world. And something else that we talked about was how important this book actually just is to the series by the end. Oh, yeah. It lays the foundation for so many things. Oh, my gosh. I, it didn't occur to me just how much J.K. Rowling was laying the groundwork for so much of what happens in the rest of the series all in this story right here. Well, yeah, I mean, let, let's let just, uh, so one, she says up the idea that Harry is a horcrux, even though we don't know it yet, but she's laying the foundation for that because they have this connection. Um, two, she actually sets up the fact that there are these things that Voldemort has put parts of himself in. Yes. And they can be destroyed. And she sets out, she sets up even without us knowing it, how you can actually destroy one with a basilisk fame. Um, you know, and the fact that it's so interesting that Voldemort's plan to come back actually almost comes to fruition in the second movie, in the second book. Um, exactly what he had hoped would happen with these Horcruxes almost happens here. And just how scary that is when you read back through and you're like, you're realizing exactly what's going on that Harry isn't even understanding. And, and even at this point, Dumbledore quite isn't understanding just yet either like yeah I think we're all unaware at this point you know having not seen any of the rest of it just how how deep this goes well and what I love about that is that you can't take any part of the stories out you know you need every single story in this seven part series to make it work in the end and and that's what I think makes for the best kind of storytelling where nothing's really superfluous, you know, mm-hmm. um, people will complain as you get to other books, you know, like the house elf liberation front and that kind of stuff that it starts to feel a little bogged down. But really when you start to dig into everything that she's talking about and doing thematically, it's just everything she's doing is important. It has a reason for being there. And that's what I love about this story here is, um, I think people just uh, 
for some reason, I feel like people look down on the Chamber of Secrets. Like, oh, that's that's probably the my least favorite of all of them, you know. Like, but I, as I watch this movie and and I read the book, um, I find myself really gravitating towards this story more and more. I'd, I'd and maybe that's just because without it, I don't understand the end. <laughs> it's true. I certainly felt that way until I revisited Chamber of Secrets myself. You know, fairly recently. It had probably been years since I'd watched the movie, just because I like some of the other movies a whole lot more. I really do. I think I feel like cinematically they're even better. I feel like Harry Potter just keeps building upon its success and getting better and better and better, even up to the very end. But that's not to say this in and of itself is not a good movie. It's a very good movie, and it's a very good story. It's a fantastic book. It's just that I feel like everything that comes after it, it, it gets better because of what happens here. So that's not to discredit it at all. I think that that's a really good point. Them laying the foundation in these first two movies, as we talked about in the first uh, episode we did on Harry Potter, so you can really grow the rest of the series. Yeah, I feel like the first movie and book, it's to introduce us to this world. The second one grows in it. And then from there, we can keep going with the deeper themes, the darker tones, and, and the growing up even further. And that's exactly what happens, in my opinion. Yeah, you know, and we were talking a little bit earlier about the roadmap that, that J.K. may or may not have had. Honestly, I don't, I don't, I, I don't know. I, don't, I mean, I don't know the woman, I don't know. And she said some things, but I, it doesn't matter because, because it builds so well on itself it feels like it was always meant to be the way that it is, that it, the way that it becomes. And I think that's the mark True. of good storytelling. Like I, I actually do kind of get the feeling that a lot of the things that pick, that pick up from these early stories later on um, maybe weren't always intentioned that way, but it doesn't matter because it fits so well that it, you can kind of get that feeling that, oh, no, no, of course, they're laying this down in book two. We'll pick it up again in book five, book six. And... Then it was like, oh, no, of course, it was always supposed to be there. It doesn't matter if it was or wasn't. It felt like it is. And that's really what matters. <laughs> Truth. Well, and and one of the things that, that I like about this movie personally, and I like about the first movie as well, and I like the more literal adaptation because I don't feel, especially there is an extended version of the film on the Blu-ray that is almost three hours long and it really feels like I'm getting everything that's truly important from the story and not really missing. I mean, there's obviously some stuff that's missing, but it really feels close to the book and I, I don't feel like I'm missing anything. And that's what I personally really love. And I'll, I'm going to ding some of the other films later for cutting out too much stuff that's important. Uh, actually to the storyline of Harry Potter. And so I really like that. And I think that this movie, in a lot of ways, I think is even more successful than the first movie in being true to the story and kind of starting to up the game with everything cinematically that you're going to get in Harry Potter that'll just going to continue all the way through to the end of the series. I have to agree with you. It is really nice that these first two films really stay true to the book. I mean, almost page for page. Very little is left out. I feel like the third movie definitely is the first time we see 
some massive cutage and a part of that was coming out of the fact well these are kids movies they shouldn't be so long but you're right they they do miss some very important things and I don't know you can't have it both ways you can't have everything and you can't have a movie in two hours or less to get it all done this movie is two hours and 40 minutes I was so surprised by that I mean I've seen these movies half a dozen times each and you know but it's been a little while since I've watched them so it was just, it blew my mind. I'm like, wait a minute, wow, I don't ever remember it. It doesn't feel that long. No. And that's no, a good mark. No, it doesn't. That's a mark of a good movie. Yeah. No, you're, oh gosh, you're exactly right. I, I don't feel like, oh, when is this movie going to end? You know, I, I feel like, and, and maybe that's because, you know, when you do follow the storyline of a storyteller like J.K. Rowling, you're not finding yourself bored. Because she's a good storyteller. You know, there are definitely things, you know, throughout the, especially the longer books, that you you do have to cut down or cut out because you can't, you know, make five-hour, seven-hour movies. It just doesn't work. But here, I, I just, they do such a good job. And I, I give Christopher Columbus all the credit in the world for being able to pull this off. And especially with it, the age that these kids are at and how much work he was putting in, I, you know... I can't think of a movie after this that I've loved by Christopher Columbus, but I got to give it to him. He he did a good job. He really did. Yeah, these first two movies, it was not an easy task. There was a lot at stake, and it could have ruined Harry Potter, you know, had it been in the wrong hands. But no, he knocked it out of the park. He did a fantastic job. Everybody really did. I think everybody knew... it's kind of strange because sometimes, you know, when you feel so much pressure, then you're almost inevitably bound to collapse, right? Or it just can't live up to the hype. But I feel like with Harry Potter, no, not only do they set the bar high and meet it, but it it exceeds expectations. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think for most part, these films, they really do. They, 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 They succeed in ways that has not readily been seen with uh, film adaptations from popular books and really get accepted by the fans. Um, you know, Harry Potter had a, has a rabid fan base and um, they could have rejected outright some of the films for not being true enough to the book. But some of those movies that weren't as close to the book actually turned out to be some of the people's favorites. So, uh, but we'll talk about it, those later. It, go, it is yes. actually kind of remarkable, and it's, it's something I hadn't really considered until now. But like, yeah, what other series of movies has eight movies that are almost, you know, people have their issues with them, but they're generally well regarded. Like every single movie, people are like, yeah, yeah it was a good movie. That's good. Like, say Star Wars. Like, you know, uh, people have issues. Somebody has an issue with one of those movies, no matter who you are. And it's like, but no, I think, I feel like the the entire eight movies of Harry Potter are pretty much well-liked universally. No, I I think you're right on, Daniel, and I I agree with you. On a whole, I can pull out any of the Harry Potter movies and watch them anytime. Agreed, same here. You know, yeah, enjoy them. So one of the things, again, just about growing things in the film, we really grow the villain of Voldemort, who, you know, in the first book in the first movie is very much that misty thing in the background you know that we barely see until the very end and then he's only the back of you know 
uh, somebody's head, which is really awkward. Of you know, Professor Quirrell's head. Professor Quirrell. So I really like that because what's so interesting too is that J.K. Rowling begins to build the villain as she also builds the underpinnings of the dark underbelly of the wizarding world and this kind of this magical racism and fascism that underpins a whole segment of the population of the wizarding world to which Voldemort was able to tap into and to then take over the wizarding world back in the day and is still trying to do it now. Like, wow, talk about timely. Um, anyway, <laughs> just a really interesting thing to see, though. I, I, I think that what makes it so good and so mythic, though, is that Rowling really tapped into something that has been seen for eons in, in human, you know, relations with each other. It's a classic story. And it is, and she really builds this villain in a great way. And I have to say, um, the actor that they got to play, the young Voldemort, uh, Tom Riddle, is fantastic because he is good-looking, charming, and utterly scary all at the same time. Agreed. It's, it's incredible what she does here with okay, this. Okay, I, I do have a question, and it's been a while since I've read read the book or even watched the movie. Um but it did strike me today a little odd. So we see uh, Tom Riddle, and I, we're, I'm assuming he's, what, 16, 17 at the time? 16. Okay, and that was 50 yes, years yeah. ago. So something that never occurred to me is that Voldemort is close to 70, and especially at the end, is 70, and is still fighting with the high school student. I just, I, to me, I... He just... You know, you can... He's not a maturity, or like, he's not emotionally matured at all, apparently. Yeah, it, well, it's just funny to me, because I always think of Voldemort as like a 35-year-old guy. But no, he's uh, no, he's an old dude. He's a real old dude. With a 16-year-old brain. <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, it is interesting to think, because uh, he... When he comes back, too, I mean, obviously, he's, he's played by Ray Fiennes. And so... But yeah, he has this... Um, otherworldly quality to him you know like he's been brought back from the dead you know and and so he has this timeless ageless creepiness to him and they do such a good job with that and yeah it, it is fascinating to see uh, them really begin to build out this villain and what he stood for in the way that uh, and what I was really shocked by and, and thought was really cool is the way that this connects with, again, everything else, this magical hierarchy of beings like house elves, centaurs, muggleborns, purebloods, you know, especially when you're talking about the Malfoys, you begin to see how this still exists in this generation and how evil just has this way of continuing to return generation after generation. It might be called different things. Like I think of in Star Wars, the, the last Star Wars, Maz Kanata saying, you know, uh, the dark side's been called a lot of things. It's been called the Sith. It's become the Empire. Now it's the First Order. But it keeps creeping back, you know, like, and the same thing's happening in the wizarding world with these ideas of, you know, this this racism against people who aren't quote-unquote purebloods. But as we'll know later on, 
like Hitler, <laughs> Voldemort isn't a pureblood. He's part muggle-born, too. He just likes to pretend like he's not. Um, you know, uh, so it's just it, it really fascinating. And, and what I love, I think I really want to thank Rowling for again, is the way that she is instructing children about the realities of the world in a way that connect with the, the best lessons from history. And I think that's one of the strongest things about this entire series, and it's it's one of the strongest things I think even in this movie um, that really come out the more I watch it. It's it's fascinating to me. So, um, well done, J.K. Rowling, and well done, filmmaking team in Chamber of Secrets. It's awesome. No, it really is a good movie, just even on its own. It has a great morality play. It's got fantastic acting. It's It's got the beautiful cinematic feel of the wizarding world. It's got everything. But then you put it with all the other movies and it's just as good, if not better, in that whole set. I wanted to ask you guys, um, specifically here, it's not on the outline, but I was just thinking about this and it's kind of important. This will be Richard Harris's last time as Dumbledore. And... I really like his performance in this movie. Uh, you can tell that he's not at the best of health um, because his voice is not even as strong as it was in the first movie. Yeah. But uh, the scenes I felt like that he has with uh, Harry, especially at the end when he gives the line about it's our choices, you know, I feel like he just has a sparkle in his eye. That and when he was uh, talking about Fox and he's talking yes, about my favorite character the in the creature. whole movie, by the way. Uh, is, yeah. is Fox? Awesome. Yeah, That's funny. he is my favorite character, comes to save the day, and uh, I don't know, having lived in Phoenix, maybe it's just the association with the, him being a phoenix, but just, what a beautiful bird, too. I love, yeah. I, I do love the what fact that, you... you know, everything is going wrong for Harry. He's been caught three times, you know, in front of these petrified people, and he's finally getting called to the principal's office. He walks in the room, and... Dumbledore's pet bird just explodes into flames. And he's like, I swear it was. <laughs> yeah, Dumbledore's me. like, it's not a big deal, actually. I was waiting for this to happen. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. It's a good thing. And then he's just this cute little baby yeah. <laughs> rising from the ashes. One of the things that I love about that scene, too, is the way that Harry reacts. Because he doesn't, he do, again, he doesn't know the the wizarding world, and he's so freaked out. Right. I'm so sorry, sir. Your bird, it just it burst into flames. There wasn't <laughs> yeah. anything I could do. I didn't do you know, it. He, I swear. Yeah. It's incredible how freaked out he is, and he plays it so well. And and then I love how Dumbledore just, you know, he's so kind to Harry, you know, and and he he doesn't obviously take for granted um, anything that's happened there. He he gently explains what has happened and why it's happened and how special you know uh you could just see that this is why this guy is the professor like he is yes. the leader of hogwarts because of the way that he can deal with any student you know and he he makes them feel at ease and comfortable and i just i that's one of the things that i i loved about richard harris's uh dumbledore is in many ways i felt like the way that he played him I felt like he was more approachable for Harry in the way that in the books, Harry finds Dumbledore more and more approachable as you move forward. And I really, that's something that I kind of missed that he didn't get to continue with because of course, Dumbledore's best stuff 
comes later on in the series too and we just don't get to get that and it was always so sad to me that he didn't get to continue so yeah agreed um, yeah. i really appreciated the i guess maybe a little more gentle approach that we get in the first two movies not that there's anything wrong with uh dumbledore's portrayal later on it's just i do notice oh so subtle of a difference there is a little more compassion there or, or something yeah, yeah. I mean, between both actors, it's it's, you know, they bring their own kind of strengths to it, right? Like, I I, I can't even imagine this actor playing the scene. I think in six or whatever it is, where he's actually dueling with Voldemort. I just, I, I mean, the, the, he's kind of too frail and and old manly. Like, I don't know how they would have done that mm. if he was still playing that character at that point. It would have been difficult to buy for me. I would have been like, this guy's going to break. Yeah, I don't want to be mean. This guy's going to break a hip. Uh, yeah. You know? It's just. <laughs> I think they would have had to do that much more like they do the book. Because yeah, the book, right. the fight is not right, all that right. fair. Um, there's there's no chance for Riddle. There really isn't. You know, he's in, in, in the chapter name makes it clear. The, the one the one he, the only one he yeah, ever right. feared. Um, and, uh, they, they make it more cinematic in the film, but Dumbledore was not worried and no. he was much more commanding in that scene in the book as well. So I was always disappointed by that scene actually, but that <laughs> anyway, we, we, we can't talk about that. That's a whole nother film. We will talk about it then. Um, I wanted to ask you guys about some interesting things that, that do happen in the film thematically, uh, you know, when the Chamber of Secrets has been opened, they get Hagrid and they bring him to Azkaban because Fudge says, look, I have to be seen doing something. I can't just do nothing. And it was such, again, Rowling is, is creating these themes in there of, of, of where a government will take an action just to be seen acting, even if it's the wrong action. Just so people are like, nope, they're doing something, and it'll happen later on down th in the line. Oh yeah, this isn't a theme that's going to go away. So I love that she starts that here. I'm trying to think. Yeah, I'm trying to life. think of a time that the Ministry of Magic is ever portrayed as anything but incompetent. And I, off the top of my head, and I may be mistaken, but every character that we see that comes from that group is no, no. It's just. It's like, leave Hogwarts alone. Let us do our own thing. Stop muddling in our business. So, yeah, this is, I guess, the start of that for sure. I don't know if it's every character, but it has been a while since I've read a good majority of the books or seen some of the movies. And so an example doesn't come to my mind right away. But, yeah, they definitely get portrayed as uh, the bad guys. They are, they, they are portrayed as incompetent and... Definitely meddling in affairs they don't fully understand. They're the bad morals. That's what that's what they are. They are the bad morals. They're the bad moral wizards. Yeah. Mm. Well, and and what it's interesting is, yeah, in the ministry, the people that we really only see that are good there are people like Arthur oh, Weasley. Right, 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 right. You know, yeah, who don't really duh. have any. Yeah, power. no, I, I was He's probably the one good person. I yeah, I was thinking yeah. more like you know towards the head of like towards the top. He's pretty. Right, he's pretty middle management true. kind of a guy. So. Right, exactly, yeah, and, yeah. And, and that's uh, I think that it it it's a good way of showing that you know you can't just blanketly say you know 
in the end, all of government officials oh. are bad. You know, it's like, but you know, that's that's where she's. I, I, I like that she uh, gives you these pieces of people that are good in places, and then there's it tends to be these bad people that kind of rise to power because they're willing to do whatever they need to do to stay in power, which Fudge is doing here yeah. to try and stay. I mean, and it creates that context with which Fudge is the Neville Chamberlain of the Harry Potter world. You know, he wants everything to be copacetic with everybody. Uh, and he's also not going to acknowledge that there's a problem until it's too late. Yeah, I guess uh, maybe it's just a little too true to life, you know, seeing so much corruption amongst those who have the most responsibility. It's it's a uh, it's a recurring theme throughout history, isn't it? It's true, and there I think you nailed it though with that kind of responsibility and getting that title. You have to do horrible things to simply get there, because you're willing to do it. And those are the people who end up getting the most power, and therefore, uh, it's sort of a I don't know, kind of like a self perpetuating cycle, I guess. I also I love this scene well, in Hagrid's hut with Fudge uh, and Malfoy. Mm-hmm. And uh, and Hagrid, of course, and and Ron and, and Harry are under the invisibility cloak. And I love the dichotomy between um, Dumbledore's secret message, you know, that he gives out nice and subtly, and then Hagrid's secret message that he just kind of bumbles it out. You know, Dumbledore's like, if anybody was looking for some <laughs> stuff. <laughs> They should follow the spiders. I, lo- I just I yeah. thought I think yeah. it's hilarious. Follow the spiders. Why couldn't it be follow the butterflies? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Poor Ron. What's What's really interesting, and again, this goes all the way back to our uh, the beginning about Harry and the choices that we make. Harry will have the choice later on to be powerful, to have the power, you know, but he will give that up. And I, I think that um, it's so interesting because she's playing with a lot of things from history here. And, you know, Harry has the opportunity to become like a George Washington where basically people want to make him king later, you know, yeah. and, and he's like, no, you know, uh, and then he also leaves office after two terms. Um, God, I wish that would happen these days. People just willingly giving anyway. uh so Harry does the same thing, though, because, like, you know, at the very end of the story, he will break the Elder Wand and he will throw it away, you know. Um, and so I, I think that that's what's so fascinating. Again, it becomes about our choices and who we choose to be and how we choose to act and why we choose to act. And, and Harry consistently shows throughout the series, and it, it really begins here, that he's committed to the truth, yeah. No matter what the truth is. And he's 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 not going to be afraid to find it, whatever it is, because it's going to be better than the lie. And I think again that's a huge really big resonant theme like we need we live in a world that's perpetuated on lies and that gets to the very next point which is this idea of fame. <laughs> with Lockhart and Lockhart is a blowhard. Who <laughs> that's is a kind way of putting nothing, it. Nothing Yes, he is a facade built on nothing substantial. He is... Yeah, what a crock. He is a lie in a suit. And it is amazing that she plays on this idea of fame and how everybody can fall for it and think they're the greatest thing ever. 
um, when they're really built on nothing but double talk, lies, and deceit. Yeah, lies and half-truths. I'm not being subtle here, folks. I, I, I'm glad we have you here, Shar. not to make this super shallow real quick, but um, as... <laughs> As two straight uh, men, I don't know if me and Matthew are super qualified to answer this. You know, in the in the book and in the movie, we're made to believe that he's this super attractive man. I'm not saying anything bad about uh, 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 Kenneth Braga. Kenneth Braga. Uh, is he in any way, do you find him a physically attractive man? I'm just curious because I, I just don't get that side of it. I, I don't. Simply on... The basis that just by looking at him, you know he's a farce. He's a complete phony. I mean, he's a little too good looking. You know okay, what I mean? Okay. Like, he's just a little too handsome. There's something up with this guy. Before a word exits his mouth, you know he's full of it. Or at least anybody with a little bit of a bullshit detector. Sorry, Matt. Uh, <laughs> I, I couldn't help myself. A- anybody with a little bit of sensibility and common sense in him should know okay no no something's not right here why everybody else in the wizarding world world fell for this guy and bought his stupid book i'll never understand but whatever Uh, that's not nearly as bad as him becoming faculty at hogwarts (laughs) where i'm sorry they need better screening for faculty members at this school what the heck man this is and this is a recurring thing (laughs) it's just so awful it well, and, and what I love later on is that we find out why that position keeps getting, having to be refilled. Bad turnover, you know? man. Yeah, that that Voldemort had jinxed the position so that anybody who would get it would only, would not be able to keep it because he didn't get the position that he wanted. And um, I, I do, I what is so interesting about what you just said is how can anybody buy somebody like Lockhart do it <laughs> just to say it. it just say it come on how can anybody buy Donald Trump they both have really I, I nice just have hair to say it. no they don't it's the same it's the same kind of thing and and i i'm frustrated and i love that Rowling brings this idea out though and 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 what it's so funny is that Think about this. Our most respectable character in the series is Hermione, right? She's the most logical. She's the smartest. And even she's duped by somebody like Lockhart. And it just goes to show how this happens. You know, somebody is charming enough. Somebody is enough uh, charismatic <laughs> enough. You know. Narcissist. So yeah. it, it yeah, beyond narcissist, yeah, sociopath. Exactly. It, you know, just using yeah, everybody else is, as a tool, basically, for their own personal gain. Yes, yes, and that kind of narcissism and using of people. Well, aren't we seeing that again in our own world all the time with people who are quote unquote famous? Right. It's true. It's true. I think you have to have a certain amount of those qualities to achieve fame in the first place. But the more you have of it, the more fame you want, the more fame you get. Again, a completely self-repeating cycle here. You know, and I like, I like, I think I like the way it's played. It's hammy and it's fun. And I think it's played really, really well. And I love this scene where uh, he's forcing Harry in detention to sign, sign his fan mail. And he starts just these ridiculous, stupid platitudes that have not fame is a fickle friend, Harry. And just saying these like nonsensical words, he's literally, right. literally blowing steam up his own butt. 
And it's it's just it's so <laughs> that would have been more productive. <laughs> That's painful. I'm sure there's a spell for that. There's got to be. I'm sure. <laughs> I, uh, I something came to mind, but I'm not going to say it loud. Loud. <laughs> Probably a good idea. I don't want to have to beep all that out. Um, <laughs> no, it is. What's fascinating again to me is the way that Rowling is not placating to her audience she's not writing down to her audience you know this is the incredible kind of thing that kids need more of you know to be shown what the world is like and the pitfalls of it in a way that still speaks to even adults you know this is the kind of stuff we we don't need to talk down to our children we need to treat them as if they should understand important things. And Rowling does such a great job throughout the series, and especially here with the Chamber of Secrets, she is rocking the themes. And I I just I can't speak highly enough for what I think that she is doing for children's literature. And, you know, a lot of people will come and try and copy her later on, but I don't think anybody does it as well as she does because there is a strange subtlety that she has about the way that she's working all of this in. It doesn't... It's very natural, I think is what you're trying to say, Matt, is she's basing a lot of this on a certain level of realism that we can all understand because this is the world that we live in. And even though it's in this magical world and there's so many things that just feel downright ethereal to us, uh, and there's there's so many good things, it, it, it never feels forced. It's never shoved down our throats. It, it just kind of is. And that's the beauty of it. Yeah, I I think it it reminds me of the stories like um you know the 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 greatest fantasy stories of our time like the Lord of the Rings where all the messages are woven into the story and feel very organic, uh, Chronicles of Narnia kind of thing. It just it's woven into the fabric of the story, so it feels like you can't have one without the other. And she does that just very well here. And, and again, it's that mythic thing of connecting with the largest points in human history and weaving it in. So again, it, uh, Chris and I talk about that on the orb with Deep Space Nine and how and why it, it continues to resonate because it's connecting with larger themes that we see played out through human history. And the same thing here with Harry Potter. So I just really, really like that. I wanted to ask before we wrap up, just uh, some other things. You know, obviously John Williams is back here with the music, um, and if there's any other things like characters or fun scenes or anything like that that you guys are like, man, I, we need to talk about that before we wrap up. Well, I do think we need to bring up the car as a fantastic <laughs> yeah. character in this movie <laughs> because it does seem to have a personality of its own. You know, the way it drives—it's awesome. <laughs> in its exit in the movie that is some tood there man yeah definitely the best uh moment it has is i think throwing hedwig's cage at harry and just like just get out of me yes <laughs> I just, just leave me alone i need to go away from just you people. get out <laughs> that was awesome i loved that um what i uh, on the car and and just like say so you know the first movie the effects are eh, it's okay um what do you guys think about the effects here in this movie? Obviously, you have a flying car, you have a basilisk, you have um, a phoenix, and uh, you know all these things. Did this kind of grow that for you? What, what were the winners there, and what were some things you're like, 
you kind of watch the effects now and you might be like, ooh. You know, I will say uh, the basilisk is terrifying. It's a a scary, scary creature. I mean, this is essentially a kid's movie and I would be frightened by that thing. I mean, if that thing was coming at me, oh my goodness, that was... (laughs) Right. I I thought that was... You know, some of the other stuff is kind of hit or miss, but really I've always been impressed by how scary that is how terrifying that creature is yeah i think there is an improvement overall with more special effects better special effects over the first film i think the first film was much more in about just showing us the beauty of this magical world and it does that fantastically i'm not trying to knock that whatsoever but here i feel like we're getting a a little bit more with the flying car with the basilisk i mean that takes up some substantial portions of this film and so to pull that off and do it successfully had to have been a huge effort and i definitely feel like they did it oh and all the cgi spiders too all of that yes yeah yeah yep and uh not to mention a lot of snakes we we got snakes yeah a lot of snakes snakes in a castle um i do think that uh for me the the effect that's okay is the car when it's flying and stuff it's very cgi um that's okay uh i think though that you were right on daniel i think the the scariest thing is the basilisk that thing looks real it looks physically as it's there um they did a really good job especially when it was fighting harry up on you know salivar sidlin's face you know it it doesn't feel like it's not there and that's that is terrifying um i I, and i really liked the animatronic fox they do really good job with that i thought um especially when it's blinking the tears into harry's wound uh from the basilisk fang and everything it it just again it's it's really there and it, it looks really good so on a whole i feel like they started to just kind of up their game here and i, I really uh liked it and i think it all works uh and then of course we didn't even mention too but i mean uh, they also up their game with the quidditch oh you yeah. Know, they, yeah they completely quidditch. up their game yeah so that looks even better than it did in the first movie so every time they just continue to raise the game of what things look like and I'm, I'm really pleased because um again i feel like this film these first two films you know they set such a firm foundation that everybody else that kind of comes afterwards does get the opportunity to play a little bit uh and and add their own kind of distinctness to the end so that by the time you get to the end and david yates has done the last what five movies um it really does feel like this kind of strange cohesive whole which is kind of odd but it works out really well so one other thing we didn't mention which is made a bigger deal i think in the books than it is in the movies here but is an interesting plot line is is the broken wand is is uh uh, ron's broken wand and uh, I mean, really, this movie would have uh, well, it would have it certainly ended differently if if he didn't have that. And uh, in the mm-hmm. books, you get this kind of economic disparity, you know, of what's going on with the Weasleys and all of this stuff. And we do get a little bit of it in the movie for sure. Uh, but it's it's a kind of an interesting uh, theme surrounding the the Weasleys, and we get to see it here, and it kind of saves the day. 
honestly, <laughs> it's a good thing he can't afford a new wand because uh, Lockhart would have been able to just mind wipe them. <laughs> Broken wand saves the day. Who would have thunk <laughs> right. it? Who? Knew? I mean, that's that's pretty awesome. <laughs> um, you know, one of the things that uh, we did mention the first uh, time that we talked about uh, Harry Potter, and uh, I noticed again here the scene where Malfoy first calls Hermione a mudblood. Both Harry and Hermione really don't know what that means in the book. Um, they know that it's bad because of the way Ron's reacting, but they have no idea what it means. I'm a little disappointed again in the films is that they took something really important away from Ron in this film and they gave it to Hermione. And Ron is the one who explains as he's throwing up slugs um, <laughs> what that means to those two. And it, it shows his quality and his importance that he would be so f mad that Hermione is being called this one, but two, that he's the one who understands the wizarding world. That's what makes him special to this trinity. They don't. And so as smart as Hermione is, there are still things about uh, the culture of the wizarding world that they don't get and I was disappointed that they took away that scene from him to allow him to be the one who's really outraged and gave it to Hermione and made her the one who's outraged because when you think about it it really doesn't make sense because she shouldn't know what that means especially a word which I don't think you probably get in a lot of educational textbooks that she's reading you know that's a that's an undercurrent thing that would be only experience when you're confronted by the racism of somebody who thinks they're better than you. you know, and so that's that's the thing that I it happens in the films quite a bit as we go on is things will get taken away from Ron and given to somebody else. Usually it's Hermione and I think it takes away from the importance of his character for that trinity because there is something that he brings that neither of them have that they need. You know, I, I, I can't specifically speak, because I don't remember the actual scene in the book, um, so I can't speak to whether it was a, a disservice to Ron to take that scene from him. I will say that that's actually one of my favorite scenes in the movie, though. Um, it's, it's probably the most touching scene when Hagrid is kind of comforting Hermione. And, I, you know, that was, it was emotionally moving to me. I, I liked the fact that, you know, he's there and... He, and he talks to her and he comforts her and he says, no, 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 don't worry about it. Don't you, don't you worry about this. This is, this guy's a bad guy. And I like that. I, I, it works for the film. I can't say that it works any better for the story. Cause again, I can't remember, but I, I do think it works really well as a, as an emotional scene. I see. I see both of your points. Uh, I think it works for the movie as well, Daniel, but Matt, you make a good point that, uh, you know, this is taken away from Ron, and he does have the better perspective to explain this, maybe. Although I do buy Hermione maybe having some grasp of what a mudblood means. Just because they've been at Hogwarts for a year already, you hear things, you know? Once your kid starts going to school, they start saying all sorts of things that you never said in the house, right? So, I, I, I totally buy that. Uh... And I think really all it boils down to is the fact that Emma Watson is just petrified for a good portion of the film and doesn't have any screen time to say any lines. That's, That's true. why they gave it to her. 
<laughs> yes, they do give something to her. Well, she's a cat funny. for a while, and then um, she becomes petrified. Yes, right. that was also. Yeah, so she's I, really I off screen love, for a while. I love when Ron's like, "Look at your <laughs> tail." <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so cute. Oh my gosh. Um. Well, okay. Uh, we've talked about so many things. So, what is? What do you think your rating for the Chamber of Secrets is? Uh, how about How about you, Sherlyn? My rating, especially kind of gearing up for this podcast and going through Chamber of Secrets all over again, really, it just keeps upping my appreciation for this more than more, or more and more, as uh, time has gone by as such an integral part of the story as a whole. You know, I said early in the beginning that first time out, I was happy with it. It was a good production and whatnot, and thought it was great but didn't appreciate it and now i have that appreciation i think my rating probably a, a good four and a half phoenix tears nice very nice is that out of is that out of five i don't know well this isn't the ready room we don't necessarily have to keep our rating system secretive do we no you okay don't. so it's out of five okay <laughs> what about you daniel <laughs> um yeah you know rewatching it tonight in preparation for the show, uh, man, I have a very unique experience with the Harry Potter uh, universe. I didn't get into it until um, Deathly Hallows Part 2 was out. Uh, it was in the theaters, and I was like, okay, fine. I'll go see this movie. Before I see this movie, I have to read all the books and watch all the previous movies. So I kind of got this Harry Potter dump, and I had experienced everything up until that point within a two- or three-week period. Read all the books, watched, oh, wow. watched all the movies. Talk about a binge. Yeah, it was it was intense. It was uh, I was on break when I was in college, so I had time. It's time to kill. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so makes sense. Um, you know, so I don't have the same kind of history with the world and the universe, and I don't not entirely familiar with exactly what people like and what people don't like. So I, you know, I have kind of a, a unique perspective in that sense. Uh, so and I and my favorite stories are the first three stories. The first three books are my favorite, and so I like the early stuff better than the later stuff. And so I, I I've always liked this. I didn't even know that people didn't like it. I had no idea. Uh, so I, you know I would. It's fun. It's a good watch. And there's like you said, it lays a ton of groundwork for what we get to see later on. You know I'm gonna give it seven willow wumps out of ten. Wow. <laughs> Nice. That is awesome. Oh gosh. Um I I really do. I I think that this is a really strong story. But I also think that this is a really strong film in the Harry Potter saga. Um it's something that I don't think a lot of people see, but I I think as you go back and you rewatch it, especially these first two films, if they hadn't have been so solid, you wouldn't have had the ability to branch off a little bit and play around a little bit more and do some other things. And they set the stage by being close to the books to give you the opportunity to have a little bit more wiggle room when you start moving forward, especially as the books get longer too. And so I really think this is something where, you know, I don't love a lot of Christopher Columbus movies. You know, he hasn't made a lot of great movies recently, too. It just hasn't happened. But uh, 
these two Harry Potter movies, I think, are very good. And I have to give uh, The Chamber of Secrets, ah, gosh, I think I'd say four out of five Moaning Myrtles. So um, <laughs> it's it's really good, and I really like what they do. I love the casting in the film. I love who they got to play Moaning Myrtle. She's amazing. I love Kenneth Branagh. He is the perfect casting for Lockhart. You know, everything here is just firing on all cylinders, and it leads us into what they'll do in the third movie, which becomes so many people's favorite, and that, for me, is my favorite book. So um, I'm excited to continue talking about Harry Potter throughout the year as we move towards Fantastic Beasts and where to find them. I'm so glad that um, we've got our associate producers here through Patreon, Ken Tripp and Davis Grayson. And they make sure that the 602 Club can keep coming to you each week. And we are a listener-supported network here at Trek FM, and that means that we really do. We need your help to keep all of the content coming to you each week. It is pretty expensive to run this network now. We have over 20 different shows, special feeds. There's so much going on with the 50th anniversary of Star Trek, and we would love for you to be part of the team. So go to patreon.com slash trekfm and find out how you can be part of the team today well gosh charlene um it was awesome because uh, not that long ago i was on to the journey that's with right you and to Tristan. the journey to, to the, the journey! journey oh we got it we nailed you it did. we you crushed got it um and uh, tell everybody where they can find you online and of course about uh, the podcast you do here on the network and gosh thanks for being here uh, come back anytime hey thank you so much for having me at long last I got to hang out at the 602, and it was great. So thank you very much. Uh, yeah, you can find me with co-host Tristan Riddell on To The Journey, talking anything and everything on Voyager. New episodes come out every Thursday. We have a lot of fun on that show. We try to do all sorts of crazy and interesting things, and uh, we love the Voyager universe almost as much as the Harry Potter universe, maybe even more. I don't want to speak for Tristan because I know he uh, <laughs> he loves both as well. So uh, anyway, check that out if you're interested in that. And if you haven't listened already, why haven't you? But also you can find me online and the best place is Twitter. My handle there is oh, the profanity. Well, Daniel, it is great to have you back in the 602 Club and uh, glad we got to talk a little bit of Harry Potter here in the Leaky Cauldron. But uh, make sure everybody knows where they can find you. Well, absolutely. Between... Between Char, your, uh, you, Matthew, and myself, we actually have the 24th century completely covered. Uh, That's true. On Trek FM. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so, so they can find me uh, on Earl Grey every week talking about TNG with my co-hosts Philip and Darren. It's a lot of fun, so give it a listen if you haven't. Uh, and of course, you can find me on Twitter. And that is at one of Dan. That's the number one, not the word. Well, you can find me on Twitter at Matt Rushing zero two. You can also find me doing the orb with Christopher Jones. We talk about Deep Space Nine there, covering that part of the 24th century, as Daniel mentioned. I'm also doing literary treks with Dan, where we're talking about every part of the Star Trek universe with the books and the comics, interviewing the authors as well. So make sure to check that out. Uh, I do a podcast with my friend John Mills that you can find on the Nerd Party Network at thenerdparty.com called Aggressive Negotiations, and that's a Star Wars podcast, and it's so much fun. We just pick a new topic each week and talk about that in the Star Wars universe, so I hope you'll check that out. And, of course, you can find me on my own personal blog at 42lifeinbetween.wordpress.com. Well, thank you so much for joining us, and y'all come back now, you hear? Thank you.